This morning, we're looking at, a, at just a couple of verses in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. And as we look at these two verses, they pose a problem for us. They pose kind of a, an interesting thing as we look at it. And part of that is because of our history in this country. So let me read these, and then you'll understand what I'm talking about. And I'll unpack it a little bit, and we'll walk through them together. Paul writes, and he says in the first verse of chapter 6, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better those who, since those who benefit by their good service, are believers and beloved. Now, anytime you, you come into a conversation in the U.S. about slavery, you just have a whole lot of things coming to bear and, and coming down on the people that hear you. And that's because of our country's history. That's because of our, our, the heritage that we come into, the things that happened before most of us were, were alive. Nobody, nobody in here was alive at that. Okay. Just, some of you scared me because you're like, I remember that. No. No, you don't. If you do, talk to somebody because that's not right. So, you know, these things that happened in our history, and so we think about the, the African slave trade, the North, North American transatlantic slave trade, and that's really our understanding. And it's horrid, and it's graphic, and if you think it's anything else than that, re read a history book. Pick up a book, read about it. It is repugnant. It is something that we should think about and be repulsed by. It's something that we should reflect on in our own probably some of our families passed and just be so completely embarrassed to the point of, of wanting to ensure that nothing like that happens again. We should want to work to make sure that nothing like that remotely resembling that happens again. And that is really our understanding and our conception as drilled into you by history teachers in college, by history professors, by television, by media, and just by your understanding of what happened in the South all those years ago, right? That's your understanding. When, so when I begin a conversation on slavery, that's where your mind goes. It goes to the South. It goes to uh, cotton plantations. It goes to this type of slavery. Now, that is not what we find Paul addressing. That's not what we find him addressing at all. He's addressing a, a slavery that is very different than the slavery that happened in the U.S., but it's still slavery nonetheless. You see, the slavery Paul addresses was, was incredibly wide in, in its impact into the Roman Empire. It was on a, a really, in some sense, a grander scale. Fully up to a third of the Roman population were slaves. I mean, a third of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And so this is something that hit everybody. But it's very different for them. You see, they're slaves in some sense. Some of them were able to own property. Some slaves owned other slaves. And the way that people became slaves was different. We didn't see settlers arrive in Africa and kidnap people and transport them over the Atlantic. We saw even individuals sell themselves into slavery. Debt got to be too much. They would sell themselves into slavery. Life wasn't good enough. They wanted to become a Roman citizen. They'd find a Roman to sell themselves to, to give themselves over to. And then we also see through conquest, men and women will become slaves. So the Roman Empire goes into a foreign territory, they, they conquer it, and they bring back men and women as slaves. 
Now, many of these slaves we find through archaeological inscription were freed by age 30. They were able to buy their own freedom or their masters would turn around and set them free. But their society and how it was propped up was very, very dependent upon slavery as an enterprise. It helped people to get out of poverty. It helped people to avoid certain things in their society that made them more vulnerable. Now, this sounds like a pretty good thing, doesn't it? But it's still slavery. We still find, even though we have some individuals that that are in charge of property, that have good jobs, that are well provided for, we see people on the other end of the spectrum that are marginalized, that are abused, that are beaten. It's still slavery. So the question probably rolling in in your mind and a lot of people's minds is, why wasn't Paul just writing and saying, look, uh, you who own slaves, cut it out. You who are a slave, go to them and say, cut it out. Why wasn't Christianity in this point standing for the abolition of slavery? Why wasn't it advocating that we just do away with the whole thing? Right? That's a valid question. If you're not asking that, I would say to you, why aren't you asking that? It's a valid, I just said that. It's a valid question. You see, Paul and, and, and those others who were in the first century, they had such a near understanding that Jesus was coming back. And he was coming back soon. They didn't see any time in their, in their future which would allow for the transformation of society. They didn't see their role as societal you know, advocates for, for change in society. They didn't see themselves as even having the time to write to change the Roman Empire. Because in their conception of how things were going to go, Jesus Left, he, he was resurrected, he ascended into the sky, and he was coming again soon and very soon. And so what they did instead was they engaged men and women with the gospel. They engaged, they walked up and they shared the gospel with people, and they had the understanding that societal change happens from individual life change. Amen? And so as they engaged people with the gospel, as they shared the gospel with them and showed people how God views humanity and how God calls us to live together, they understood that a byproduct of that would be societal change. Would be societal change. But in the midst of the situation where where they were living, Paul was addressing a church in Ephesus that was dealing with the issue of slavery. Churches in our day deal with with music. Churches in our day deal with with titles and plurality of elders versus singular elders. Churches in the first century were dealing with something that was really pressing upon the way that they lived life. They were dealing with the issue of, of, of how do slaves respond to those in charge of them. And Paul writes, he addresses this situation in verse 1. He says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, if you are a slave and you have a non-believing master and he treats you well and, and maybe you even own other slaves and he's told you, hey, look, in five years you'll have enough money you can buy your freedom. Life's good for you, right? I mean, you get this word from Paul and you're like, oh, man. You know, Bill or, or whatever, the, you know, Paulus or whatever the name of their master is, they're thinking, I don't have a problem with that. Showing him honor, considering that he is worthy of all honor. I love that, Paul. I mean, I am, I am there with you on that. 
But again, looking at the other side of the equation, think about those that don't have it well, that don't have it good. Paul writes and he addresses a wide variety of people. And so he addresses that slave that is in the midst of a situation that is terrible. He addresses that slave who who can still feel the whelps on his back, who can still feel the strike on his face. Man, he addresses that slave that is marginalized, that is abused, that is degraded, that is forced to do the worst and completely awful tasks. So he addresses both sides. He addresses those that are, are really enjoying the benefit of this arrangement and those that are facing the worst kind of slavery. And his word to them is, consider them worthy of honor. And what an insanely difficult thing he calls them to. And when we look at that, and it's, it's a challenging word, and in some sense we're in sins, we're angered that Paul would have the audacity to suggest such a thing, that he would have the audacity to suggest to those who are being abused, to those who are being mistreated, that they consider their masters worthy of honor. Now, he's not talking about mere lip service. He's not talking about just when they see him. You see, Paul writes in, 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 in Titus, and he gives us an even clearer picture of this. In Titus 2.9, Paul writes, he says, Bond servants, slaves, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything, and key in on this, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. See, Paul recognizes and he realizes that Christianity was in a precarious position. They were minorities in the empire. They were not well-liked, and they were suspected of doing things. They were suspected of trying to undermine authority in the Roman Empire. So Paul writes them, and he's trying to broaden their perspective and help them to understand that even though your lot is not great, you serve a greater purpose. He was trying to help them understand that, and so he gives the purpose of them rending honor towards their masters in the second half of verse 6. He says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. He looks at them and says, look, I understand, and some of you are so justified in thinking these thoughts towards your master. And as we just went over, some of these guys had awful awful, horrible conditions that they were living in. They weren't treated well. They weren't spoken to kindly. They weren't thought highly of. They weren't valued as people. They were valued as one scholar who said that just as a slave is a living tool, so a hammer is a non-living tool. You see, that's the reality that he spoke into. But what he called them to realize is that in their behavior, they were working to be an adornment of the gospel. They were proclaiming the gospel in their behavior, in their response to those in authority over them. That when they were instructed to do something, they did it well. Not because they wanted to impress, not because they were looking to get freedom, but so that God's reputation and that the teaching of His Word may not be impaired. 
Do you see the bigger picture Paul calls them into? He helps them to see themselves in the advancement of the gospel. He says, look, when you act up, look, when you do things to try and undermine your master, when you try and take a shortcut, when you speak back to them, you're not helping the gospel out. You're causing damage to the reputation of God. You're causing damage to his reputation. You're causing the teaching, you're causing this this fledgling Christian movement to suffer, to stumble, all because you value yourself more than you do the movement of God. And that's probably something that smacks us in the face more as Americans than anything. When we value ourselves and our positions and our comfort more than we do the advancement of the gospel. You can't deny that these people are suffering. You can't deny they were in difficult situations, but Paul calls them to see the advance of the gospel is more important than their passing comfort, than even their lives. Now, as we break this down, we recognize that none of us in here, or that nobody that I know of anyway in this body, is currently a slave. Does slavery exist today? Absolutely. UNICEF. Uh, produced numbers not too long ago, and they said upwards of 27 million people currently live in slavery. Of those 27 million, 80% of those are women, and of those 80%, 50% of those are minors. Children as young as nine years old are sold to meet the sick, perverted ends of grown men. I mean, we see slavery absolutely happening in our day. It is, it is not something that is caught up solely in the pages of our Bible, but it is something that surrounds every major sporting event in the world. When the World Cup travels, so do it slaves. When the Super Bowl comes to town, so do sexual slaves. I mean, this is something the church absolutely should be working against. This is something that absolutely the church should stand in opposition to. But when Paul writes this, we recognize that none of us here today are slaves. But each of us here today are under authority of some sort. Recognize for those of us that are in the labor force, whether you're self-employed, to which case you answer to everybody, or you're employed in a uh, corporation, in which case you answer to your boss and to his superiors. Man, most likely work for a non-Christian. And you have an opportunity to make much of the gospel in your efforts, in your work ethic. You see, we're, we're tempted to think that, that work is something that resulted from the fall, right? That Adam and Eve are in the garden and everything's great and it's all my ties and hanging out by the beach and occasionally naming animals. But then the fall happened, we're not going to call names, we're not going to say it was Adam or it was Eve, but the fall happened and suddenly we've got to work. I've got blisters, I've got an aching back, and oy vey, I hate life, right? That's, that's just not what happened. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were caught up in working. After the fall, working got harder. It was hard before, it got harder after You see, work is something God instills in us, God designs for us, and it is a way that we can glorify God. 
And so for the person working for the non-Christian, what you should be seeking to do is to glorify God in the amount of effort and energy you pour into your job. Because you don't want your supervisor, you don't want any customer, client, somebody you come across saying, they're just a lazy Christian. Because that does damage to God's reputation. That does damage to the movement of Christianity. But instead, you give yourself to the task of glorifying God in that work. You know, and then my mind goes to, well, what about those who don't work but they are married to a non-Christian? Peter addresses this in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, in essence, they aren't Christians... They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Paul calls us to recognize that the gospel is more important than any of us individually. It is all about our corporate advancement of the gospel. I mean, you think about students, and I think about the time I spent in school you know, growing up in, in first through twelfth grade and then college and then, well, seminary, most of those guys were Christians and PhD. I think at least 30% of my professors are now Christians. Maybe, maybe higher. But as you think about it, think about the awesome opportunities you get to come across teachers that don't know Jesus. And think about the opportunities you get to display your work ethic and how diligently you apply yourself to study, to homework, to respecting those teachers who the school has placed in authority over you. You can make much of the gospel in that location. You can make much of the gospel in how you approach them and how you approach the work they give you. See, we all have a role to play. We all have some situation in our life where we have those in authority over us where we know or we are fairly certain this person is not a Christian, but we can make much of the gospel in our response to them. And we can make sure that damage doesn't happen on the gospel because of our bad response to them. You see, we go through that, and, 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 and that made sense for a lot of the people in Ephesus, but Paul moves to the other side of it. He says, now look, some of you have masters who are non-Christians. It doesn't matter how they treat you, this is how you respond to them. You consider them worthy of honor so that damage doesn't happen to the gospel. Now he comes to the flip side of it, and he says, now some of you, you have masters that are Christians. See, as we look at this situation in Ephesus, one of the things Paul doesn't tell us is that whether or not any of the elders there were slaves or owned slaves, right? We just don't know. And so Paul writes, and look, we don't know whether or not that some of these elders were slaves, whether or not they owned slaves, and how the situation worked out, but Paul addresses it nonetheless. He says, look, some of you, you have masters that are Christians, in the situation that he writes to is, is the slaves who had masters that were Christians, they looked at it and said, look, we have commonality in the gospel. I am, I am free in Christ, and you can't oppress me in that. And so they were disrespectful. They spoke back to them. They were insolent. They didn't abide by their authority. They saw themselves as being equal in all things, and they were working against the gospel. And Paul writes, and he says, no, stop that. 
He says in verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful. He says, look, don't be disrespectful to another brother in Christ. Don't go to him and when he tells you to do something, say, look, I don't think you really want me to do that. After all, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, tonight's my night off. Paul wants him to recognize, look, you're not seeking to win this person to Jesus because they're already there, but you are seeking to still glorify God. He says, look, don't do this solely on the grounds that they are brothers. Some of those in Ephesus, some of those slaves were taking advantage of their masters. Solely on the grounds that they're Christians. Solely on the ground that they're Christian. They were taking advantage of them. Paul counters it and he says, don't do this. Instead, serve them all the better. Serve them all the better. He says, look, the temptation is for you to look at your relationship, to look at the gospel commonality running through both of your lives and to say, you can't tell me what to do. It's to say, look, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, you're going to forgive me for being lazy. I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, it's okay, I'll get to it tomorrow. They were using the gospel as an excuse not to be diligent in their efforts, not to be hard workers. Paul tells me, he says, serve them all the better. From what grounds? He says, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Paul's argument is twofold. He says they're believers and they're beloved. He says, on the one hand, you know these men to be Christian. They're your brothers in Christ. Furthermore, God looks at them and sees them as beloved. You see, there might have been a temptation on those slaves to look at those who had authority over them and to think, they're not as good of a Christian as I am. They're not suffering the way I am. They're not dealing with all the same issues I am. But Paul illustrates the reality of the situation. He says, God sees them and he reckons them lovely. God sees this person that's a master over you and he considers him to be beloved. They, in fact, are believers. And you must serve them all the better. Now, when we roll into our day again, we think about those times that we work for Christians. And so if you're in a workforce, and I remember when I worked at Southwestern and I had 30, 40 people underneath me, and over and over again, I would have people come up to me and say, you know what, I was, I was up really late last night reading my Bible, or I was at a Bible study, and I'm just really tired, and, and that's why I'm late to work today. And say, but look, you love Jesus, I love Jesus, so it's no big deal. You see, they, what they wanted to do was to use their Christianity and their commonality between me and, and them as a reason to be late, as a reason ultimately to be lazy. And that is a terrible reflection of the gospel. God doesn't want us using our Christianity as a reason or an excuse for our behavior. He doesn't want us doing that. He doesn't want us engaged in that. But when you are, as a Christian, you recognize your boss is also a Christian, and you begin to let up in your endeavor. 
Paul has already told those serving non-Christians, man, you work hard to make much of the gospel in your workplace. He turns to those serving Christian masters, and he says, if they work hard, you make their work look like ease. You make their work look like leisure. Because you are benefiting men and women who proclaim Jesus as king. See, we need to recognize that we are all under authority. We all have an opportunity to glorify God in our endeavors. I mean, if you are you know, a spouse or a student or whatever situation you find yourself in, and you know the person in authority over you is a Christian, that is not an excuse to be lazy. That is not an excuse not to try hard, but the word from Scripture is that is a reason all the more to give yourself so diligently to the practice, so diligently to the work. And you think about where does Jesus fit into the whole idea of slavery and service? And I think about Mark 10, 45. Jesus spoke these words. He said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we think about the issue of slavery and how we are connected to this, Paul writes it this way in Romans. He says effectively, you're either a slave to sin and death, or you're a slave to righteousness and to God. See, when we think about the issue of slavery, we recognize that all of us have a choice to make. We're all under authority, but when we look at it from an eternal perspective, we are either under the authority of sin or under the authority of Jesus. We're either under the authority of sin or under the authority of Jesus, and Jesus gives us a beautiful picture of what it is to be a servant. As we read in Philippians earlier, it says that he was born in the form of a servant in the likeness of men. So Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He came to give us a pattern of what it is to serve and to serve well. We need to find our role in this. We need to find our place in this. Paul wrote into a miserable situation. He wrote to address the issue of slavery, and we still see today that we are placing ourselves under the authority of certain things. But those of us who find ourselves under the authority of a non-Christian, the word Paul gives us is that we serve well. The word Paul gives us to those of us who find ourselves under the authority of those who are Christians is we serve all the more well. Let me pray for us.